Welcome to this week's episode of Mixed Methods. A couple announcements before we get started. First, join us next Thursday, December 7th, for a Q&A in the Slack group with today's guest, Matt Gallivan. You can request an invite under the community tab at mix-methods.org. Also, check out Mixed Methods on Medium. You'll find UX research how-tos, write-ups on the latest conferences you might have missed, and more. Today's episode is sponsored by DScout, a remote research platform that's turning fieldwork on its head by allowing researchers to conduct experience sampling with real people right on their smartphones. Visit dscout.com to see how easy it is to start your own study. Here's this week's show. Matt Gallivan has had an amazing career in research, and I get the sense he's just getting started. One of his first jobs was at NPR, where he worked on the redesign of the site. Then after working at a consultancy for about a year, he went to work at Facebook, where he managed a team of researchers. For the last two years, he's been working at Airbnb, responsible for research and researchers working on the host side. I wanted to sit down and chat with Matt after coming across an article that changed the way I thought of my own role as a researcher. This is Ariel Sianflon, and you're listening to Mixed Methods. Today's episode, the true value of user experience research. Thanks so much, Matt. Of course. Thank you for reaching out. I'm happy to do this. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So... I wanted to start, I feel like you've had such an interesting career. I mean, I'm a big fan of NPR, but I'll let you get to that. (laughs) Yeah. So I feel like you've had this really interesting career because, you know, you studied economics and philosophy. And I think a lot of people in our profession kind of come from unusual places. And, you know, for some reason we've ended up as researchers, but I would love to just kind of start by hearing a little bit about your story and sure, yeah, Yeah. how you came to this. I think you're so right. Like, I don't think I've met I've probably met one or two people who have uh, landed in a career as a UX researcher after having that as like their stated like goal yeah. for their career. Everyone else has sort of happened into it through some weird circuitous path. Yeah, and that's totally. definitely been the case for me. My start in research, actually, <laughs> it's kind of a funny story. So I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, when I graduated <laughs> college, right? Is, is true for so many of us. Um, and I spent all my graduation money on rent, just trying to figure it out and, and waiting for something to fall into my lap. Um, uh, as it turns out, it doesn't work like that. Um, so I had to, to make money to pay rent. Um, so I got <laughs> the first and easiest job that I could get, which was doing telephone interviews at a call center. Oh, funny. Um, so doing phone surveys. Um, and it was awful. It was just miserable, thankless, terrible work. <laughs> um, and I did it for two weeks, and I tried to quit. And they said, you can't quit. We've never had somebody <laughs> in the call center uh, with your type of background and your level of education. Uh, how about we make you the manager of the call center? Oh, my gosh. Um, and I was like, okay, cool. I'll try that. It sounds interesting. Um, and so I sat in sort of the little manager office and used the little spy phone and, and listened to people doing phone surveys. And I did that for, for two weeks. And it was 
awful. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't, it, it wasn't fulfilling, you know, like, um, it's, a, it's important work. Obviously I'm a researcher. I think it's important work. And, um, it's also a great, um, stopgap form of employment for a lot of people, but it wasn't a fit for me and what I wanted to do. So I tried to quit as the manager and they said, no, no, <laughs> we can't let you quit. What if we make you the supervisor of, of the call center? And I said, okay, great. I'll, I'll try that. And when I did that, um, I started getting more exposure to um, sort of the, the projects, the research projects that were um, being passed along to the call center mm. from the agencies. So the call center was in-house at an ad agency that had a research team. Um, and I started working with the, with the market researchers. Mm. Um, and I started doing some interesting research projects. I started doing uh, in-depth interviews over the phone, uh, with and this was in Vermont, which is where I grew up and why I moved home after school. Um, and I just started getting exposed to uh, more traditional market research type work. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought it was fascinating and really, really cool. Then, you know, life changes uh, led me to Washington, D.C. Um, I felt like I wanted to, to leave Vermont because that's sort of where I'd spent my whole life. And so I moved to D.C. without a job, actually and looked for one for months, living off my credit card, um, racking up obscene amounts of debt. <laughs> Again, not super responsible or intentional as career strategies go, right? But through my job search, uh, stumbled upon a listing at NPR for a data analyst job. And I was like, I could totally do this. Yeah. Um, and were you like a big fan of NPR? Oh, huge. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, so I grew up in an NPR household, right? And so my parents had it on all day, every day. Mm -hmm. You know, I still have a Pavlovian response to hearing like the morning edition theme song totally. or the All Things Considered theme music. I just, uh, my brain is like, oh, it's time for dinner. <laughs> you know? So a uh, huge, huge NPR nerd and fan. And I remain one to this day. Uh, my my own daughter now, I'm sure, has the same, same responses. <laughs> um, so it was a huge thrill, right, just to even see this job posted. So I went in and interviewed um, and, you know, lucked into the job. Um, and it was, it was an interesting uh, but pretty, you know, low-level, entry-level job. Um, basically, my role was to figure out how much each station around the country, each NPR station, had to pay in terms of its membership dues and fees um, for the rights to air Morning Edition and all things considered, because those uh, prices were based partly on uh, their audience size. Mm. So it was, it was a lot of numbers crunching. Mm -hmm. So I just spent a lot of time in Excel uh, and using syndicated radio research databases to, to calculate those prices. And that was, that was the job. Eventually, over time, I, it's kind of funny. I think this happened because people thought of me as sort of like one of the young people at the company at the time. Mm -hmm. I, I probably no longer fall into that category, <laughs> but like, at, you know, as one of the resident young people, they're like, oh, you know about the internet, right? <laughs> this, this strange thing that we've heard of. And it was an interesting period of, in time mm -hmm. where NPR organizationally was having this moment of realization like, oh, we, we are a producer and distributor of public radio content to member stations around the country, but we have an opportunity to, to, to do so much more. And the internet is going to open up 
a lot of opportunities for us to serve the public in new and, and interesting ways. And there was a VP of digital media there at the time. Her name was Maria Thomas. And Maria, who is one of my, you know, idols in my professional life, and, you know, another one of my idols in my professional life, my manager at the time, Laurie Kaplan, they sort of tapped me and said, hey, can you learn a little bit about how to measure internet usage? We want to understand how people are using NPR.org. So I started doing that. And I started doing more sort of original primary market research type work about understanding the digital audience of, of NPR. And I loved it. It was so fun and fascinating. And I cared deeply about the subject matter, right? And over time at, at, at NPR and in that role, I started getting exposure probably on Twitter <laughs> when Twitter was first starting to become a thing to this field called UX research. And I was learning about methods that people employed to understand how people interacted with and used digital products. And I was like, what a cool thing mm -hmm. and a natural extension of what I'm doing now. So I started faking it until I made it, right? <laughs> and it, due to, you know, great uh, management support, to Lori's never-ending credit, she really encouraged me to, to lean into that. I just started, I just started doing studies and started doing stuff mm -hmm. and, and learning as I went. That sort of led me to uh, when I had to leave NPR due to another life change. You know, I, I met my now wife at NPR. Mm -hmm, um, cool. And yeah, it was great. And she, uh, she got a promotion, which required her to move to New York. I couldn't do my job from the New York office for NPR, so I had to leave the company to, to go with her. And I got a job at the digital product agency, Huge, in Brooklyn. And that was a very eye-opening experience. So I, that's sort of where I cut my teeth on doing deep-in-the-weeds product research, um, a lot of usability work. Mm -hmm. Did that for a couple of years, and uh, then Facebook reached out. And they were looking for somebody to do research on advertiser tools and, and ad products. So I was like, wow, that's amazing. And what an incredible opportunity. So I, I pursued it. And I successfully tricked them into thinking that I was up to the task and, <laughs> and, and took the job. And so I was at Facebook for about three years. And, and I've been at Airbnb now for that period of time as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a great story. I've been super lucky, mm -hmm. and I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what I did to deserve all of that luck, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and it, it's, I've had great luck to work for for companies that I'm a huge fan of and advocate for, and I've also had so much amazing like professional mentorship mm -hmm. um, and guidance along the way, and it's it's been a really fun journey. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsor. Long before starting this podcast, I knew about Dscout. I had heard from friends about an app where you could get paid to tell people about your experience doing something like shopping for a pair of pants or your daily yoga routine. As a researcher, obviously I was intrigued and then impressed when I checked it out. Dscout makes it crazy easy to set up studies and get in-context moments about the topics you're most interested in. 
The app is changing the way research is done from postmortem to an in-context experience sample. Learn more at dscout.com. Well, and one thing that I think, you know, in hearing your story that stands out to me or that's really interesting is that you kind of started with this very like quantitative heavy data analyst figuring out exactly like how much this, you know, subsidiary of NPR owed. Um, and, you know, the reason that we're sitting here having this conversation beyond just your amazing career is this article that you wrote that I found really interesting that really kind of talks about, it's called Embracing Uncertainty in UX Research. And what stood out to me is kind of you calling out this paranoia that exists among yeah. UX researchers of not coming across scientific enough. Sure. So it's interesting to me that, you know, you as someone who started out in this very <laughs> like scientific space are, you know, also the person who's kind of saying it's okay to not be that in this role. So like, tell me about that. What was the inspiration for that article? And yeah. Um, so, I mean, I would start by saying that, you know, a, a lot of the, the stuff that I was doing early in my career that, that, seems quantitative is, was very much like just pure like raw number crunching right mm -hmm. I wasn't doing any applied statistics um, I don't have an advanced degree in that stuff um, I've had some informal training in it but I don't consider myself an expert uh, mm -hmm. because I'm not but I think what prompted me to write that post was my time at Facebook mm -hmm. um, and the exposure to sort of a really hard driving metrics-driven product culture that I exposed uh, was exposed to there. Facebook is an amazing company. Uh, it, they are going through an interesting period in their history right now. I am and will remain to be a huge supporter and fan of what they do, um, and also a huge fan of the culture that they've built there um, for their employees. But it's really unique, mm -hmm. right? Um, and a lot of their success um, can uh, I think a lot of people would attribute a lot of their success to a real uh, hunger for and reliance on on data and behavioral data and inferential data um, and statistics. And I think that that coupled with being an engineer-founded company uh, and an engineering-driven culture created a mood around sort of the practice of UX research uh, of skepticism, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think it was a new, like, I think, I don't think it's out of any ill intent, right? Um, I think it's just a lack of understanding and a lack of education. I think a lot of people's initial reaction to hearing about the type of work that we as UX researchers often do is one of deep skepticism. Hmm. It's like, yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, okay, well, I was just, you know, in the, the meeting before this one, I was looking at a chart <laughs> comprised of a billion users. Uh, and now you're asking me to sort of believe what you have to say based on your conversations with six. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'll never forget my first Zuck review and him seeing the, the N equals 12 on a slide. <laughs> and he laughed. He literally laughed. Um, a Zuck review being like you sit down and present your project to Mark Zuckerberg? So me as part of a broader cross-functional product team, mm -hmm. we, we sat down and sort of presented the, the status of the, the project that we were working on to him. Um, and research was represented in, in the, the deck. I mean, it, 
even with with Mark, like no ill will there, right? And I, it was a, a lack of understanding of what I had done and mm-hmm. why I had chosen to do it that way, right? Um, so I had to say, hey, yeah, uh, that's funny. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's not what we're normally looking at in, in meetings like this. But here's what we did and here's why we did it. And it, this is sort of what I, uh, the, if you could boil that post down to a tweet, which you probably could probably do pretty easily, is that like, yeah, there aren't numbers for everything, right? <laughs> it's pretty simple. Um, and that's, I think, a, a common sense and intuitive thing that most people understand. But I think, you know, not a lot of people have been exposed to, to that as sort of a mindset when it comes to sort of building and shipping product for millions and millions of people. Mm-hmm. But in my experience, when you take the time to invest a little bit of effort and education into letting people know why you're doing things the way you're doing them, why you're exploring the questions you're exploring, and and why there is no better alternative than interviewing human beings and observing them uh, in their natural environment or in a lab environment, they get it, you mm-hmm. know? And I think what I had picked up on observing other researchers have similar conversations and similar challenges was this sense of like insecurity Mm -hmm. um, and feeling like, oh, like how many times do I have to fight this battle of like justifying my profession, right? And I think a lot of UX researchers can sympathize with that. I think we've all been there. Mm -hmm. And I've spoken to a lot of researchers who are friends or colleagues about this. And a lot of them have chosen to sort of move on in their career from companies or cultures where that's been really problematic for them. They just say, I don't want to fight that battle anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's It wears me down and it's it's tiring. So, you know, reflecting on it, I think I wrote that post to and for myself <laughs> a little bit mm-hmm. to say like, hey, Matt, like what you do is valuable. Like nobody else at this company uh, and no other function does it, right? And no one else, as a result, can produce the types of data and the types of content that you do. Um, and no one can help product teams in, in the way you do it as a result. And I think I exercised some demons ready. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, okay, yeah, 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 that's true, Matt. Like, totally true. Yeah, I mean, you uh, can tell reading it that it's a really personal topic for you. And I think for me, like, as soon as I read it, I was like, I have to reach out to him because it <laughs> felt like, wait, he's having that experience too. Like it was totally one of those things where you're reading someone else writing your experience. Totally. Yeah. You know? Yep. Well, and from your story, I'm so curious to hear, like, what did you say to Mark Zuckerberg in that <laughs> in that moment when he was like, N equals 12, were you like, see my post on radio? <laughs> <laughs> I had yet to write it. Otherwise, I totally would have. I would have tweeted it at him just to rub it in. No, I, I, what what did I say in that moment? I probably like tripped over my words, but I, I think I said something to the effect of, oh, well, the reason that number is so low is because, you know, we did this study in a lab and we wanted to observe people actually interacting with the experience to like get signal on the things that behavioral data won't be able to tell us. Something mm-hmm. something broad in general, and he, he's, he got it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a funny moment to have like this this tech guru like laugh in your face when you yeah. saw your work. Well, and something else that I thought was like really interesting about your post, because it kind of starts with 
this thing that you've observed, which is that a lot of time, a lot of times UX researchers kind of become their own worst enemy because mm. they start to say, our users do this or our users think that, right? Yeah. When it's like our whole role here is to kind of recognize and represent the nuance that exists in these product experiences. Totally. And that too was something that I think I had observed myself mm -hmm. doing in a pattern I had fallen into. And I think that was driven by this sense of insecurity, mm -hmm. right? It's like, oh God, like I'm here at this really important company, uh, really <laughs> crazy <laughs> period in time. Like I'll remember having this job forever for the rest of my life. And I've managed to trick them into thinking that I know what I'm doing and talking about. And if a PM comes up to me and says, Matt, what do advertisers think about, you know, this interface that we built for them? I, I mean, yeah, I need to answer them. I need to, if I don't know, I, I need to pretend like I do, mm -hmm. right? Otherwise, they'll say, why is this guy here? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I've, when I started doing that, I, I sort of caught myself. I was like, well, wait, no, like I, I've never observed that. I don't have any evidence for that. Like, I'm basically offering an opinion that's grounded in, uh, sure, like my, my intuition might be a little bit more attuned to, to the needs of advertisers than, you know, maybe the engineer sitting next to me who has never interviewed one. But that doesn't mean I know the answer, mm -hmm. right? Um, like as a researcher, it's my job to seek out evidence um, and to be objective and to, to make observations based on that evidence and recommendations based on the evidence. So the realization I had was like, well, I guess that means that either I'm going to have to research every single conceivable subject that somebody could possibly ask me about when it comes to the advertiser tool experience on Facebook or <laughs> get comfortable saying, I don't know. And of course, I chose the latter. And I was like, oh, well, that's liberating. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because when you say it, guess what? You know, the PM doesn't say, why is that guy here? The PM says, I appreciate that. <laughs> and let's work together to figure it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm, I would love to hear like what that, you know, you kind of just said what that interaction looks like now, mm -hmm. but have you had any pushback on this? Like, have you had any people who are like, why aren't you more scientific? You know, like you're a researcher or, you know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm curious if there's been any downside to you kind of recognizing and embracing that as a UX researcher, you don't have to be a scientist in the same way a chemist is. Mm -hmm. Maybe, but I don't think so. You know, I think, I think most people understand uh, the distinction when, when you sort of take the time to explain it to them and explain sort of why we employ the methods that we employ. Maybe, uh, you know, had I continued to sort of make things up or operate off of <laughs> intuition, like I could have developed a great reputation as someone who has all, the, all of the answers. And who knows, maybe that would have been great for my career, but I, it wouldn't have been very honest, right? And I wouldn't have been doing my job. So yeah, I don't think I don't think I've encountered anyone who who hasn't really gotten it. I think it's just a matter of like people shifting their mindset a little bit and you know accepting a little bit of of an education. Yeah. yeah, I think that's an interesting thing to recognize is that like this was necessary for you to authentically 
you know, do your profession. Totally. <laughs> via UX yeah. researcher. Yeah, for sure. I think having this realization made me much more comfortable uh, doing my thing within the context of a, of a big technology company that's very metrics driven, mm -hmm. you know. I think it gave me, it, it allowed me sort of the latitude and freedom to develop a, a language and like a lexicon about like how I do what I do. Mm -hmm. um, and it's liberating because it feels honest, right? Mm -hmm. And it is. And if that means that I'm adding more caveats to, you know, a list of observations or findings from, from a study, so be it, you know? And like, if there's gray space or like some unknowns, like let's explore those and try to think about how we might go about gathering more evidence to, to feel more confident and less uncertain about a decision we want to make mm -hmm. or just live uh, with sort of uh, uh, or accept a certain level of, of uncertainty mm -hmm. about the decision we're about to make. Yeah. And you just said so that we can, you know, have less uncertainty and that, you know, was kind of the whole point of this post, right? Mm -hmm. It was recognizing that the point of UX research is not to have like a 100% black and white answer. It's to reduce the uh, uncertainty that your product teams have as they're making these decisions. Definitely. And I think, I think sometimes people, especially folks who haven't partnered with researchers before, go into that partnership and that collaboration with the expectation of achieving some degree of certainty, right? But that I, I really don't think that's our job. I think our job is to say, like, look, given the tools that we have at our disposal to explore this question, we will be able to hone in a little bit on what we think a correct answer might be or a correct path might be. But rarely will we ever be in a position where we can say, like, 99% of the time, like, we can be uh, confident that the answer is within five percentage points of X, right? Like, we don't have that same set of tools that, mm -hmm. that other brands of researchers do. Um, but, you know, what we, the methods that we employ exist for a reason because they get you other rich, valuable stuff. Yeah, it's interesting because sometimes I think there is kind of this pull or like desire to be a data scientist. And sure. it's like, if you yeah. wanted to be a data scientist, Would that's been a different profession. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I mean, and that isn't to say that there isn't like a really lovely synergy between data science and UX research. Because to me, I feel like a lot of times, you know, it's kind of like two eyes yeah. and it allows you to like get a better view because with data, you can see something, but maybe you're like totally off in terms of like how far it is or whatever about it. And so that's the thing that I love about having both of those perspectives is that you really get a more focused, clear image of what's in front of you, even if maybe you don't know exactly what it is. Definitely. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, a Data scientists are such incredibly like valuable partners to researchers and the tools that they have in their toolkit are so complimentary. I, you know, it's interesting, like I, I've had this conversation with a bunch of people. I, I always feel like philosophically data scientists and UX researchers both look at one another and they're like, there's so much opportunity for collaboration between the two of us. Let's totally work together and find like cool ways to, to collaborate. Mm -hmm. And then in the practice of like doing your day-to-day -day works, like, oh, well, what exactly, like, how would that look? Like, how can we make that? And it can be hard mm -hmm. sometimes, which is really interesting, right? I don't have any real like keen observation to make about why that might be other than just to observe that 
it's often true. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's because the types of questions that our tools are really well suited to answering tend to deviate pretty significantly. Mm-hmm. Um, so we end up pursuing different tracks of work. So, but I've had great relationships with data science partners. I continue to and continue to value them so, so much. But man, I wish I had like some trick up my sleeve to like being able to produce like more frequent powerful collaborations with them. Like not to say that I've never seen it happen. I definitely have. And uh, researchers I work with here at Airbnb are really, really good about that. But I don't know. It feels like everyone says like on the surface, there should be this great synergy, mm-hmm. but it can be really hard to execute mm-hmm. on it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I thought something else that was interesting in the post was you kind of recommended this hybrid approach. Mm-hmm. And it was also, you know, you had referenced a a post that David Brooks had written in the New mm-hmm. York Times. And and you kind of said, you know, like maybe we can be comfortable having one foot in each world, like in the science and in, uh, you know, like the liberal arts. For sure. And I wonder, like, how does that express itself in your own practice? Yeah. And maybe it's that synergy or like attempts at collaboration with data scientists. Definitely. Yeah, I think <laughs> I worked with a guy at Facebook uh, named Matteo Rando, and Matteo went on to to be a PM at Spotify where he is today. But he wrote this great post reflecting on his time as a researcher, and uh, he had a great sort of turn of phrase in it that has stuck with me uh, ever since. He was like, "Researchers shouldn't be so precious about their the sources of insight and data that they uh, either employ or communicate about." I think he's so right. Like insight and observation and like helpful helpful observation can come from any number of places. And that is absolutely inclusive of tools that fall outside of the traditional UX researcher toolkit, right? We at Airbnb have a really large global regional operations team. Um, so we have people around the world who have one-to-one relationships with our hosts. And we've invested a lot of effort. There's a researcher on the team here, Sukhita Jag, who uh, in partnership with a a person on the ops team, Jamie Lynch, came up with this brilliant program to tap into the insights that regional people have about host populations in different Mm -hmm. parts of the world. There's no name for that as a research method, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Yeah. Um, But it's so valuable. And it's a scrappy, hacky method of of collecting data and collecting information and being able to act on it. So I think that that's one thing I would say, right? Like, I think I've tried to sort of embrace that mentality of like, don't be precious about the things that, the tools that you employ. And also try to diversify and triangulate as much as you possibly can. So, you know, the exposure to uh, survey work that I got early in my career when I was doing more traditional market research work Mm -hmm. is a huge part of how I do my job as a UX researcher. It's such a powerful combination of, you know, being able to make an observation and then be able to generalize or measure uh, the incidence of that observation within a a defined population. Mm -hmm. So I think diversification of methods outside of the purely qualitative stuff is, is super powerful and important for researchers to embrace. And that's, an, that's like an ongoing journey for, for everybody in the field. It's part of how we all grow. Um, and a lot of people come from more quantitative backgrounds and they 
try to grow by learning and embracing qualitative methods and, and vice versa. So yeah, to, to go back to the, the David Brooks quote, which is so weird that I quoted David Brooks in <laughs> a post about UX research, right? But it was like, when I read it, I was like, oh, that's kind of like my field and what I do. I, the same thing could be said. He was talking about psychiatry, actually, in the context of that column that he wrote. But what I loved about that point that he made was that, yeah, a good, um, sometimes, sometimes reality is complex. Human beings are absolutely complex and complicated. Mm -hmm. And understanding them and their motivations and their behaviors is not a simple task. And sometimes the hard sciences can offer a really helpful lens onto things like that. But they are also sometimes very ill-suited on their own to understand. To represent the, that experience. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I think that like having having a a wide view of like where uh, insight, data, and observation can come from is really, really important for mm -hmm. researchers. Yeah. Well, and, you know, in your post, you also call out that this is only going to become more important and more necessary as like the digital space and the digital landscape continues to just grow exponentially. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think... I mentioned earlier in our conversation about when I started getting exposure to UX research as a practice and as a field. And gosh, I mean, that was probably like 10, 12 years ago, 15 years. Maybe, maybe I should stop. I'll stop. Um, but a long time ago. And I feel like it was so different back then than mm -hmm. it is now, right? People didn't really carry supercomputers in their pocket everywhere they went back then. Yeah. And... So all of, and it, like just think about your own life and like all the things that you did on your phone today and how did you accomplish those things 10 years ago, 15 years ago? It was so different. And I feel like the field back then was much more focused on doing broad but shallow sort of ex explorations of how people interacted with websites, right? And it, my time at Huge even was was largely dedicated to understanding how people interacted with certain types of websites. <laughs> and like even the phrase website now sounds so dated, <laughs> doesn't it? It's so interesting. So like, yeah, and it, there's there's the fact that like we're using all these new different types of tools and devices, but also the services and the roles that these that technology and technology companies are playing in our lives is so pervasive now. Um, and it's such a diffuse landscape. Uh, the notion of like trying to study or observe people using Spotify and to make generalizable observations about how people use Apple Music or what have you is kind of an absurd notion, right? It's like you can't do it. It doesn't work anymore. In mm -hmm. maybe a very different way than like you probably could get away with making some generalizable observations or statements about how people interacted with with websites, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, like the observations, like these things are becoming increasingly diverse in terms of like the the nature of the experiences we have and the nature of the interactions we have with these with these tools and these these applications. And I think we've seen sort of the correlation between the explosion of those types of experiences 
and the number of UX researcher jobs that mm-hmm. are out there. You're in this field. I'm sure you've observed the same thing. Like I think most people who are sort of looking out for their career and looking for interesting opportunities tend to keep a finger on the pulse of what's out there most of the time. And the explosion of the number of UX researcher jobs over the last five years or so has been a, a remarkable thing to observe. And to me, it's a great signal of of what's happening out there. It's like digital tools and digital uh, surfaces and like services are becoming such a, a vital embedded part of everybody's lives. And everybody wants to know how to do it and build stuff that's good. Um, and so people are recognizing that what we do is is critical to, to doing that. Yeah. So one last question is, and I, I do agree with what you just said. Like mm-hmm. it is something that I've seen and I am amazed by how many more UX researchers there are and how it's spreading. Sure. Right? Like it's spreading to these tech communities where it's like, you know, now in, you know, Salt Lake City where I just was, it's becoming a thing and everyone's looking for it. I swear, like there are five companies out there that are looking to hire a UX research it's manager, incredible. you know? Yeah. Um, and so the, I guess the last thing that I wanted to ask you about is still in the same vein of, you know, this future where shallow and broad no longer works, mm-hmm. right? And you talk about having like one of the things that will come with this is that we have to get really deep and narrow in certain places. Sure. And as I read that, I was like, oh yeah, totally. But also how do you decide where? Right. You know? Yeah. That's a really good question. And I think the answer for most people who do this type of work in industry is, you know, wherever my team is focused on solving a problem, mm-hmm. um, the challenge then becomes questioning, is my team looking asking at the, the right, right thing and <laughs> yeah. asking the right questions? Yeah. Um, and that is an interesting challenge. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think another common theme and common challenge of, of doing UX research in industry is like, how do I earn that seat at the table? How do I get more influence and increase my sort of uh, share of voice, for lack of a better phrase, in, in my team and get people really bought in and, and excited about what I'm doing? And I think that that problem is like a good way to think about how to position oneself as being more strategic and and more valuable to a team. I think the more a researcher is able to sort of take take a step back from the the latest button or wingding that the team wants to ship. <laughs> wingding. <laughs> wingding. That's a that's a thing. And say, well. That yeah, we could totally explore that. We could try to observe people <laughs> clicking on the wing ding, or we could ask ourselves: um, Is this what they need right now? Is this what our users need? Is, is, do they have a bigger problem that we could be solving for them mm-hmm. um, that we're particularly well positioned or well suited to solve? And some of the most successful uh, researchers I've seen in my career are masters at doing that. I work with a guy, Yoni Karpfen, here at Airbnb, who is a, a total master at this. And Yoni invests a lot of time in relationships with his colleagues to make sure that they're bought in and understanding of the trade-offs that he's making sometimes when he says, yeah, we're not going to focus on the wingding. What we're going to focus on is, you know, what makes a good trip on Airbnb? Mm-hmm. And we're going to start from there. And he produces these incredibly rich 
incredibly detailed and strategic pieces of work that end up totally laying a foundation for the future strategy of, of his team. Um, and that's a, that's a superpower. What other discipline in a product team can offer that, mm-hmm. right? What other discipline has sort of an outward facing lens on the world the way we do and can so profoundly change the direction of where a team goes? I think that is where the secret lies for, for UX research as a discipline to kick it up to the next level. Awesome. Thank you so much, Matt. That was amazing. And I feel like I learned so much. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, and thanks for all you do for the UX research community. It's, <laughs> it's awesome. Like, it's so reassuring to listen to this podcast and say, I'm not alone. And <laughs> people care about this stuff. And, and it's fun to talk about it and, and nerd out on it. So, so thank you for Mixed Methods. Thanks for listening today. If you want to continue the conversation, join us in the Slack group for a Q&A with Matt, Thursday, December 7th. If you aren't already a member of the Slack group, you can request an invite under the community tab on our website, mix-methods.org. Follow us on Medium and Twitter to stay up to date with the latest UX research trends. Special thanks to Denny Fuller, our audio engineer and composer, and Laura Levitt, our designer. See you next time. Thank you.